Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us, that you have not left us in the dark trying to find our own way in life, but that you've spoken clearly in your Son. Father, we thank you that in him we have salvation. And we ask now that as we look at how he has commanded us to live, that you would give us hearts which are wise with a wisdom from above. Father, as we look at this passage, we do ask that you would speak to us through it. Father, help me to speak clearly and truthfully, and may your spirit take your word and apply it to each of our hearts. Father, we ask that we would become people who are more and more committed to your son and to your gospel. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Well, he is uh, no fool who gives what he cannot keep uh, to gain that which he cannot lose. Uh, those are the famous words which Jim Elliot wrote in his diary nearly 70 years ago. Uh, Elliot was a young American. Uh, he was athletic, he was articulate, he had a university education, and a lot of people thought that he had a lot to look forward to in life, a lot of potential. Uh, but just over two years after he wrote those words in his diary, uh, Jim Elliot got on a plane and went overseas to be a missionary. Uh, Elliot was living in Ecuador, uh, living among the native people there and telling them the good news about salvation in Jesus. Uh, Elliot began his work among the Quechua people, but he'd also, also heard of a tribe called the Alka. Uh, they lived far out in the jungle and they had almost no contact with outsiders and almost all of what they did have was hostile. Uh, there was one Alka person known to live among the Quechua and her name was Dayuma. And she had fled from her tribe when most of her family was killed in a tribal feud. And Dayuma said of her own people that they were killers. And she said, never, never trust them. They may appear friendly, and then they will turn around and kill. But Jim Elliot wasn't deterred. The Alka were perishing without Christ, and Elliot had the message of eternal salvation. So together with a small group of other missionaries, he undertook searches by plane, hoping to spot some sign of where the Alka were living. Eventually, after many, many flights, they spotted the Alka and they prepared to make contact. They learned a few simple phrases of the Alka language from Dayuma. They lowered gifts from their plane in an attempt to show that they came peacefully. And then eventually they landed and they met some Alka people. And everything was going fantastically. They went back for a second trip, but that time things turned out differently. The Alka attacked and killed the missionaries. Five young men were killed. Five young women were widowed. And nine children were left fatherless. And it would be easy to look at the account of Jim Elliot and the others with him and say they were fools. Now, they had ample warning. They knew exactly what they were getting in for. And so why did they throw everything away? Why did they needlessly lose their lives on a shore of some isolated river far away from home? What a waste, people might say. What foolishness. But in Elliot's eyes, this was not foolish at all. Uh, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Uh, Elliot and his fellow missionaries had given their passing earthly lives to take the message of eternal life to those who would not otherwise have heard it. And their efforts were not in vain. Other missionaries, including Jim's wife Elizabeth, uh, continued to reach out to the Arca. The work started by Jim and his friends opened the way for the gospel to reach these people. And there are many, many people who have come to faith in Christ as a result. And they'll be with us for all eternity, appraising the God who has graciously reached out and redeemed them. 
and they will be there in a small part because Jim Elliott and others like him were willing to give up the comforts and the securities that they had and even earthly life itself to labour for that which is of eternal significance. It was actually in reflecting on this morning's passage that Jim Elliott penned his famous words. And I think he's really helpfully captured the heart of this parable that Jesus tells. This parable tells us that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. But it also warns us. It warns us that too often we are fools. It warns us that too often we cling to that which we cannot keep and we ignore that which is eternal. And so Jesus' words encourage us and urge us to reevaluate all of our lives in light of what really matters. Let's look again at the details of this parable. Uh, The basic plotline of Jesus' story is simple enough. Uh, There's a rich man who has uh, hired a manager to take care of his business interests for him. But in due course, accusations are brought against that manager. And it seems that the accusations are true, or at least they're credible enough to land this manager in pretty hot water. The accusation we read of is that the manager is wasting his master's possessions. Now, we're not told exactly how he's accused of doing that. Uh, Maybe he's corrupt. Maybe he's just incompetent or lazy. But whatever it is, it's enough to get this guy fired. So in verse 2, the master calls the manager in and tells him that it's all over. He says, give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Now, maybe you can imagine if you were that manager walking out of that meeting and what it would have felt like. Uh, He probably thought he was set up in a secure job more or less for life. But all of that has uh, crumbled beneath him. He'd be starting to feel pretty desperate. Uh, What what is this guy going to do? He's about to become unemployed. Uh, And more than that, he's not really going to be able to get another managerial job. His master's not going to write a glowing reference for his CV. And so no one is going to hire him. He's going to be the crooked manager that, that everyone rejects. And so this man begins weighing up his options. Well, what about a labouring job? Uh, that's what most people did in his day. Uh, but this manager has been sitting behind a desk for a little too long and he realises he's just not physically cut out to be digging all day under the hot sun. He thinks, well, maybe what about begging? You know, sit on a street corner and put your hat in front of you and hope to get enough spare change to make it by. But he just can't bring himself to it. Uh, he's ashamed to do it. It would be disgraceful. So he can't dig and he won't beg. Uh, what can this guy do to keep a roof over his head and food on his plate? It might look like a completely hopeless situation, but at this point our manager comes up with a rather ingenious idea. He's been fired, but all of his, managers, all of his master's accounts are still in his possession. It seems that maybe the news of him being fired hasn't quite made its way around town yet. And so this manager has an opportunity to act now so that when he clears his desk, he will have somewhere else to go. Now, at this stage, the estate of the master no longer means anything to the manager. The manager's on his way out. If the master's business flourishes, the manager will gain nothing. If the master's business goes into decline, the ex-manager is not going to be harmed in any way at all. The manager has this very limited window of opportunity to use his master's things to provide for himself elsewhere. And so the manager comes up with this plan and he sends messages to everyone who's indebted to his master and calls them in. 
We find what he does in verse 5, picking up halfway through. The manager says to the first debtor, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. He said to the second, How much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. And he told him, Take your bill and make it 800. So what is this manager doing here? It might seem like a bit of an an odd idea to call in everyone and slash their debts. But the manager isn't just, you know, spitefully attacking his master on his way out. The manager is damaging his master's business, but in doing so, he's also befriending other people of considerable means. He's opening up doors for his own future. Now, the first thing you need to notice in this passage is, is how big the debts this manager is dealing with are. Often I think when we read the Bible, we skim over the numbers. Uh, But the quantities described here are huge. Uh, If, like me, you're not familiar with uh, gallons and bushels, you might have a footnote uh, with metric units. Uh, The debts to the master are about 3,000 litres of olive oil and about 35,000 litres of wheat. And now in Jesus' days, those things reflect a lot of wealth. Uh, One commentator suggested that the debt of grain would have been worth eight to ten years' wages, and the debt of oil would have been worth about three and a half years' wages if you're an average person. And that means that the people that our manager is dealing with are themselves incredibly wealthy people. Now, if I walk down to the bank tomorrow and ask for a loan of half a million dollars, they'll probably tell me very politely to get lost. But someone who already has a few million dollars of assets, they can walk down to the bank, no worries, uh, they can get the loan. And that's the kind of person that the manager in Jesus' parable is dealing with. Now, these are wealthy people. These are wealthy people who can take out massive loans because they're doing big business and have the capital to secure those loans. And so when the manager slashes their debts, he's inflicting significant harm to his master's estate. But he is also befriending other people of considerable means. And these people will feel indebted to him, obligated to help him once he leaves his current master. If the manager uses the wealth he cannot keep to open up doors for his future. Now, it's worth pausing for a second at this point because at this point in the story, most of us are probably thinking that this manager is an absolute scumbag. Anyone here with a business might be silently praying that they will never have the misfortune of hiring someone so corrupt. This manager is a thief, he's a cheat. His only concern is for his own well-being, and he's willing to use and to harm others for his own purposes. So what could there possibly be to learn from this story? Uh, What can be commended about this unrighteous manager? Well, we read in the first half of verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. The manager is commended for his shrewdness. It's important to pay attention to the fact that it's not the other way around. It is not that the shrewd manager is commended for his dishonesty, but this dishonest manager is commended for his shrewdness. Now, the parable shows no approval of his ethics, uh, calls him out as dishonest, uh, or more literally, unrighteous. But while recognising his deplorable morals, the parable points out that this man had a level of understanding. He was shrewd. Now, that doesn't mean that he had a phenomenal intellect or that his creative thinking skills were out of this world, he was shrewd simply in the the way that he recognised his situation and he acted accordingly. 
He recognized that the things he had were slipping through his fingers. He saw they could be used to secure something more lasting, and so he applied himself urgently to do that. As Jesus finishes up this parable, then we come in for a bit of a shock. And it's not just something which is you know, confusing, but it's something which challenges us and confronts us. And Jesus says that people like this crooked manager are doing at least one thing better than so many upright Christian people. It says in the second half of verse 8, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. Ouch. Are we, Christians, are people of the light, just got compared with a criminal and we came out second best. So why this slap in the face? Well, the focus is still on the idea of shrewdness. The unjust manager was commended because he assessed his situation rightly and he was ready to act accordingly, giving up the things which he knew he couldn't keep for the things he understood to matter in the long term. And Jesus says that the people of this world are often good at that. And we see it all around us, don't we? Our people apply themselves diligently to what they think really matters. They work hard to secure their job prospects. They save up for houses. They put money away for retirement. But we, our people of the light, we Christians, we've seen that none of those things ultimately last. We've seen that only the things of God's kingdom endure. And yet so often we live as if we had not. Or we try to have a foot in both camps. Now the people of this eyes are fix the people of this world are fixing their eyes on what they think is truly significant. Are they working with all their might towards it? But so often we invest ourselves in that which we say has no ultimate significance. Now so what should we do instead? How should we live wisely with the things of this world? You look down at verse nine. Jesus tells us. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. In that verse, Jesus shows us that we are in a very similar situation to this dishonest manager. And the first thing we notice is that our wealth will not last. In telling us how to make preparations for when it's gone, Jesus shows that it is going to go. The question is not if, but when. Now, perhaps you think you're good with your money, you can play it safe, store things up, weather any financial storm. But as Jesus showed just a few chapters earlier in the parable of the rich fool, sooner or later, you'll lose it all. The rich fool might have done everything right to hold on to his possessions, but then he died and he couldn't take anything with him. Money is not going to last if we live our lives just acquiring things and acquiring wealth, then at the end we will have nothing. And when we see that that's the basis of Jesus' critique here, we can see that it applies to anything in this world that's bound simply to this life. Our money won't last, our houses won't last, our reputations won't last, our time, our careers, our intellects, our bodies. None of these things are going to last They're simply part of this world in its current form, which is passing away. We can't keep these things, but we can use them now. So like the manager in Jesus' parable, 
Jesus tells us that everything is about to be taken away from us. But Jesus also points us to a reality that is far more secure, far more lasting, and far better than anything which we are about to lose. Jesus points us to eternity, to the eternal dwellings that he is preparing for his people. Jesus doesn't spell out the details in this passage, but he's clearly talking about the eternal life that God offers to those who trust in him. A life which not only lasts forever, but which is incomparably greater than any experience we have had of life thus far. There are a whole lot of good things in this world, but the eternal life that Jesus speaks of is not just enjoying all of those things, it is enjoying the one who created all those things, the God who imagined and fashioned this whole world. And it is enjoying his presence directly and forever. It's when we see the reality of that life that lies ahead, that glorious eternal life, that we can understand why Jesus compares our present life to just a brief moment. And when we see that comparison, it helps us to think clearly about what we are going to do in this short time before our desk is cleared. Again, in verse 9, Jesus tells us, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now those words might sound a bit strange when we first look at them. How can you gain friends with your wealth? If you go out to the mall tomorrow and you start offering people cash to be your friend, I think there'll be some people who will take your money. But they probably won't be around in a year's time let alone welcoming you into eternal dwellings. And some of us might be thinking to ourselves, well, what kind of friend could possibly secure my eternity anyway? Aren't we only saved by personally trusting in Jesus? And of course, the Bible is incredibly clear on that. We are not saved by doing things or buying things. We are only saved by putting our faith in Jesus, who paid for our sins on the cross and who now gives us his life. Uh, That's what we celebrated over Easter. Our debt is paid and our our life is found only in Jesus. But what Jesus says here is not actually contradicting that at all. Uh, Jesus has just been telling a parable and I think we need to read his conclusion in light of the images of the parable itself. The manager used his wealth to gain access, used the wealth he had access to for a moment uh, to make sure that there would be people willing to take him into their homes when he found himself thrown out of his present one. And Jesus wants us to do the same kind of thing. We need to use the passing things of this world, including our wealth, but but all the things of this world, for the sake of that which is eternal. Jesus gives us another vivid picture of this idea in the second half of the chapter. There's a parable about a man who has not used his wealth this way. There's a man who keeps his wealth to himself. He, He lives it up, he enjoys himself, while there's a beggar sitting at his gate. And eventually both the beggar and the rich man die. The beggar goes to be with the righteous, but the rich man goes to torment. And at that point, there is no one and nothing who can help this rich man. He spent his life enjoying himself, and there is no one to save him or to welcome him into eternal dwellings. Later on in Luke chapter 18, another rich man wants to inherit eternal life. Jesus tells him to sell everything he has and give to the poor and then come and follow Jesus. But again, tragically, the rich man is unwilling to part with his wealth. He goes away sad because he can't, he can't give it up. 
He clings to the things that he cannot ultimately keep. He turns his back on what is eternally valuable. Jesus repeats the same idea again and again. Those who want to follow Jesus must give up everything to do so. Those who try to hold on to their lives here and now end up with nothing. Those who are willing to lose their life for Jesus' sake keep their life into eternity. We have to be willing to give up the things of this world if we want to follow Jesus and share with him in the world to come. And when we say that, it's not that there is a simple transaction taking place. It's not that we buy life from Jesus at the cost of our earthly life. We could never buy eternal life. What we find, though, is that we do lose something, and we do do lose something, we do gain something, uh, but we lose something because we cannot hold on to both things at once. And we can't hold on to this world and to the things of Jesus any more than we can drive two cars at once or live in two houses at once. And so we have to make this choice. Uh, Which one are we going to hold on to? Are we going to hold on to the things of this world or are we going to begin living for the next? Are we going to live for ourselves or are we going to live for God? In the final part of this morning's passage, Jesus uh, paints that choice in terms of two masters. He says in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is really the crux of the matter. We need to make a choice about who we are going to serve. Will we live for God or will we live for the things of this world? Often it seems like we we try to have a foot in both camps. We think we can give each one a place in our lives. Do things for God, but also try to make sure that you can have a comfortable life here and now. Try to keep a bit of a balance. But Jesus says it's ultimately impossible. These are two different masters, and we cannot please both of them. They both call us to follow them, but we can only follow one. Will we give our entire life to serve God? Or will we continue to live for ourselves and the things we can have in this world? As we look at this parable, then it's it's a challenging parable, and it's challenging for all of us. Maybe there are some of you here this morning who have not trusted in Jesus. And this parable speaks clearly about the choice you face. Jesus tells us here that anything in this world that you're putting your hopes in will not ultimately last. Our money, our careers, our houses, the lifestyles we want, our plans for a family, the friends we make, the reputation we have, they're all passing away. We can't hold on to any of these things. Even if you could somehow manage to get through life without hitting the rocks. Even then you have these things for 70, 80 years. Even if it's 90 or 100, pretty soon that's going to be gone. And you'll find yourself with nothing. Like the manager in this story, you need to take stock of your situation. You need to realize that the wealth and the status and the hopes of this world are about to fade away. You need to decide to live for something which will truly last. Jesus says that those who will give their lives to him, surrendering all to his will, and that they will find true life, a life with God, life that never ends. If you've not trusted in Jesus this morning, I would urge you to 
think again about your hopes and your plans and your ambitions and to weigh them in light of eternity. Stop living for the things around you. Instead, turn to Jesus. Give your life to him that you might find eternal life. Give him authority over you to direct you as he pleases. Trust in him to take away your sins that you may be reconciled to the Father. And you'll find a life which lasts forever and which is glorious beyond imagination. This parable also challenges those of us here this morning who do trust in Jesus. In fact, Jesus is primarily speaking to his own disciples here. As Christians, we have come to know that the things of this world are passing away. We have realized that only the things of God's kingdom will ultimately last. And yet too often, unlike this crooked manager, we still invest ourselves in these things as if they were what actually matters. Too often we try to have a foot in both camps and live a comfortable life while also thinking we are securing our eternal future. People of this world are showing themselves to be wiser than we are. We can't continue to be half-hearted about the things we say are ultimately significant. We can't serve two masters. We need to look again at the things we have, all the things in this passing world. We need to realise that we have them for only a moment. And so we need to stop living for them, but instead use them to serve God and to serve his kingdom, to live for that which is eternally valuable. In Jim Elliot's case, that meant leaving behind all the comforts and securities of a prosperous Western nation. Ultimately, it meant giving up earthly life itself so that he could take the gospel to those who had not heard it. And maybe there are some of us here this morning who could best use their fleeting life in the same way that Jim Elliot did, to leave the comforts and securities of a place like Australia and to go where the eternal gospel has not been heard and proclaim it to others so that they might find life. That would be a fantastic way to respond to the truth of this parable. But this parable is not just telling you to become a missionary. In fact, it's not directly telling us to become a missionary at all. For each one of us, whether you're a teacher or a builder or a stay-at-home mum, everything we have in this world we have for only a moment. How can you best use your life and everything that you have for the sake of that which lasts forever? We need to remember that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that that our hearts are fickle, that so often we do run after the things of this world as as if they were what matters. Father, help us again to see clearly. Help us to look at reality as it is. Father, help us to see the glory of the gospel, the glories of life that awaits your people forever and ever. Help us to live for these things and not to go chasing the the fleeting pleasures of this world, to give our whole lives in worship of you. Father, we do ask that as we live in service of you, that you would bless our efforts, that they would bear fruit into eternity. Forevermore, there would be 
people gathered around the throne praising you and that we would have some small part in that. Father, we ask this in the name of your Son and for his glory. Amen.